we talked a little bit yesterday on the uh, subject of the aeons, and I'm just going back to review it, not as a, a prepared part of the uh, class presentation I have, but you know, we mentioned in the afternoon class this, uh, those of you with 35 field binoculars can see this, I'm sure. It's, you're probably familiar a little bit with that drawing at the bottom of the page. I'll leave this book around here somewhere on the stage if you want to uh, come up and look at it. Uh, of course, just looking at the picture is not going to give you the uh, uh, complete understanding. And maybe I can read just a sentence or two, and maybe I'm getting in deeper trouble because uh, I'd like to put this to bed, to be honest with you. Uh, on the aeon, we were talking about the aeon of the deity, and uh, Dr. Thomas's comment on this, and it's very difficult to pick up in the middle of a paragraph and continue the sentence, but uh, as briefly as I can, he says, The aeon of man is three school years and ten, while the aeon of deity, and that's what we talked about, is, quotation marks, from everlasting to everlasting, end quote. It is, therefore, and he capitalizes this for the importance, a course of time, A-E-I, circling around on being, the circling depending upon the nature of the being circle. Hence, deity being essentially life, the circling of time can never cease in relation to him. But priesthood and man being essentially terminable, the circling of time around them cannot always continue. The diameters of their aeons may be measured by their continuance. Now, that's his comments, and, and they may add to the confusion somewhat. They may help a little bit. I'd like to leave this book. Uh, I will leave it out here somewhere so you might take a glance at it uh, before you get away. At the end of uh, our first class, this being our second uh, hour of study on this uh, multitudinous Christ, we were trying to emphasize that uh, it is very important that we have our feet uh, doctrinally on the ground uh, and not hold to any uh, segments or, or mutations or distortions uh, of doctrine. Uh, for they only interfere with our appreciation and understanding of the coming uh, glory to be manifested in Christ and his uh, multitude. Uh, perhaps Christadelphians have erred in the past uh, in, in a sense of, uh, of discretion and uh, being critical of their uh, so-called Christian counterparts uh, I do not like to make a habit of this, and I, and I think I can safely say I do not. Uh, but I felt it would be interesting to the class, and from a standpoint of an appreciation of the truth, not, not that we would uh, uh, take every opportunity we could to knock some other uh, element of Christendom, although we as a general group realize that we have two basic uh, groups concerning the Bible, and that is truth and error. If, if I uh, depart in any sense from the truth and, and mutate it, uh, I've got error. I move into the other field uh, uh, on a uh, doctrinal basis, and it's rather 
uh, a strong denunciation, but I think it's something we should uh, consider, that when I, uh, again, depart from some element of the truth, seriously enough, uh, I really become apostate. I'm, I'm in this apostate group. Uh, the very meaning of the word apostate having something to do with uh, defilement or, or uh, uh, departing from the truth. So I'm either apostate or I'm true. And, and it's uh, sometimes a little difficult perhaps for various ones of us to say, well, now what is truth and, and just at what line uh, do we leave the truth and come into this other group? But in the, uh, this was December, so this has been about seven months ago, there was a church in Richmond, the first Unitarian church, and they, they had a little segment here, it's 12 pages, a, a leaflet in the, uh, probably the Sunday paper. And it, they built a new church, and they were uh, trying to give the citizenry uh, some of the details about it. And uh, they asked a few questions here about it. And, of course, Unitarianism, as we all recognize, is not Presbyterianism or Methodism or Catholicism or something else, but it's, we're looking at this one. And I may have picked one that uh, uh, is quite a bit different than the others, but I'd like to read you some of the uh, questions and answers. And I'm having to skip around because of the length of it, but the uh, first question I've checked off here is, what is the basic Unitarian principle? If I'm interested in this uh, doctrine, I want to know something about it, apparently. Well, the answer is this, freedom of belief. Unitarianism does not require assent to any creed or statement of belief. It maintains that each person has an obligation to seek truth as best he understands it, and to follow that truth wherever it may lead him. So that's uh, an introduction to Unitarianism. What do Unitarians believe about God? Unitarians are free to believe about God whatever seems to them to be truest and most meaningful. Some religious liberals are frankly agnostics. I, I take it by this they mean that you can be in the church and be an agnostic or be a believer in, in deity or or form whatever belief or of deity that you want to, they prefer to put theological matters aside and concern themselves with philosophical, social, and ethical questions. For other Unitarians, the concept of God has deep and sustained meanings, again, depending upon individual interpretation. God as creative process, as emergent purpose, as life force, as the organizing principle of the universe, as the ideal of love and justice, or of goodness and perfection, and perhaps most often as ultimate reality. These are the meaningful ways by which many religious liberals define God. To them, the word God is a poetic symbol which expresses the deepest and dearest values of life. Now, I thought in reading that question and answer uh, in relation to our subject that what we're saying God is, is Yahweh, that he will ultimately be manifested in a multitude. This is, this is God. Uh, it is not what you choose to believe or what I choose to believe about it. Uh, I can't make up a concept or theory uh, and pass it on to you. It's no, no good. But what God has revealed or declared about himself, we, I guess we have to say, we're very dogmatic in, in saying that we must believe what God says. Uh, in this sense, I plead uh, guilty to being uh, dogmatic. Uh, what about Jesus? Unitarians regard him in terms of his influence as one of the master saints and prophets. 
They revere him as they revere Moses, Buddha, Confucius, Mohammed, and the world's other supreme religious leaders. They do not regard Jesus as a supernatural creature, the literal Son of God who was miraculously sent to earth as part of an involved plan for the salvation of men's souls. A summary way of putting the matter is to say that Unitarians are more inspired by the historical Jesus than by the theological Christ. What about the Bible? Unitarians regard the Bible as a collection of many books written by many men over a period of 1,300 years. And, of course, sometimes when you just read words along, uh, it can escape the meaning. But I, I notice written by many men and comprising a treasury of religious teaching, literature, and evolving moral precepts. A human document, the Bible to Unitarians, is a record of man's unending search for meaning in the universe. It is the majestic story of his religious growth from the low country of barbaric rites and human sacrifice to the towering heights of spiritual reality where Amos, Isaiah, and Jesus triumphantly stood. It's a bunch of garbage, really. Uh, do Unitarians believe in immortality? Their faith allows them to believe whatever they personally find most meaningful about immortality. It seems safe to say that few Unitarians believe in a resurrection of the body, a literal heaven or hell, or any kind of eternal punishments. All Unitarians unite in recognizing an immortality of value and influence that the good men do lives after them, and that when they give their allegiance to such ideals as beauty, truth, love, and justice, they align themselves with what is permanent and transient in the world. How do you join a Unitarian church? The formal act of joining is usually just a matter of signing a membership card or book. Well, uh, maybe I need not comment, but uh, I guess one comment I would have is that it makes you, it should make you appreciate the fact that uh, most people have the uh, prerogative and hopefully good sense to open their Bibles and uh, read what God has said. So we should appreciate the basic values of what God has spoken. Uh, we, we denounce uh, philosophy such as that, and I think uh, on a note of criticism that, that I don't think any of us or, or any of our uh, members uh, have ever come to this uh, stage of belief, but there are fringe areas there in recognizing God as, as a rather a nebulous being and, uh, and a aroma or influence of good without defining his concrete uh, qualities that uh, we might have a tendency to lean into sometimes. By, by review and, and self-criticism uh, or introspection of us as a body, uh, most of us are familiar with either our own ecclesias or our state or our, our broadening out to uh, other areas of, of the country and, I suppose, overseas uh, among the Christadelphian uh, household. Uh, we're really not worried today and uh, should not be worried, I suppose, that, that some of our group, uh, one of our members, is going to suddenly come up in our meeting and say, well, I, I believe 
that uh, in heaven going, that this, this doctrine we've been teaching about the kingdom on earth uh, is no good. Uh, this is really not the danger that we have among us uh, today. I don't know how far back we go, but I think uh, if we go back 40 or 50 years, uh, there was more accent among the Christadelphian body, I think, in denouncing and renouncing the, the immortality of the soul and heaven going, the personal devil and hell and all this. Uh, the church, in many cases, my criticism would be that they have so watered down their doctrines that they have none today. They won't affirm, too many of them, that they believe in a personal devil or that they believe in immortality of the soul, or if they do, it's so watered out in language that you can't really understand what they're saying. So we really don't have that to fight against within ourselves or perhaps even without. But what do we have uh, to watch out for? Well, the groundwork... Uh, of the first principles uh, is needful of being defined and redefined among each individual here uh, over and over again. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to get up every morning and recite uh, the statement of faith or something like this, but uh, we should know in our minds from time to time the truth concerning uh, these important matters. We have enumerated merely five, and, and we feel this is very insufficient, but we just want to call your attention to it. One is that uh, there has been a mis misconception in the past that Adam was created mortal. Now, if we under, uh, think that Adam was created mortal, we lack a good foundation in the principles of the truth. Adam was not created mortal in any sense. He was created uh, very good, according to the terminology of the scriptures, uh, in a nature uh, that one of our... Uh, pioneer writers has, uh, I think, very adequately called terminable. He was neither mortal nor immortal, but as he came upon a uh, system or problem of sin or transgression or disobedience, then he fell or, or changed from this nat uh, nature of terminable to mortality. It became a mortal condition upon him. Uh, two, we've had problems in understanding that Adam's descendants, that is us, are not federally related to the same death sentence that was passed upon him. The implication being, uh, with a theory like this, that they, or we individually, incur death or bring death upon us by our own personal acts of transgression. And this is a false theory that we must uh, watch out for. We must recognize that we and all humans descending from Adam are federally related to a sentence of death and that something must be done uh, to remedy this. Three, we've had problems in the past uh, concerning the nature of Christ, that he possessed clean flesh, that he did not need to offer for himself, uh, but his offering was totally uh, substitutionary or for the benefit of others or some other uh, erroneous uh, conclusion. Four, uh, there are those uh, from Christadelphian backgrounds that have claimed that baptism is for personal sins only and it has nothing to do with our relationship to Adam. And this is a very dangerous area, perhaps called in question today uh, more so uh, than in many years gone by. We want to know why are we baptized? What is the purpose of baptism? What is its efficacy? What does it do for us? Why is it required? Uh, what is its relation or teaching 
from the types, perhaps, in the Old Testament. Get our feet on the ground, is my advice, uh, to the purpose of baptism. Five, the general liberality in areas of conduct. We mentioned in our class yesterday that, that the uh, first chapter of Revelation was the, uh, we may have called it the most uh, declarative of, of the uh, subject matters in the Bible and, and uh, pointing out the multitudinous Christ or defining or picturing this uh, body for us. Let us modify that and we'll say it's one of the, of the chapters that, that pictures this uh, group. Uh, to some it might be more effective than others. But in this uh, first chapter, the revelation uh, being given uh, to the Apostle John in the year 96 A.D. Uh, was, we want to know its authority, from Jesus Christ to John for the benefit of us or his uh, people who were to succeed or come on in following generations, it concerns things which must shortly come to pass, therefore it's telling us that this is a prophecy or a prediction of what's going to happen next year and the year after and on up until certain things are accomplished. Uh, this is our background, and he tells us that the central figure or the operational entity of this apocalypse, uh, that is of God's complete program, I think we could say, is this Son of Man similitude. And... There are about four points that we have chosen to comment on. Uh, one, the he cometh with clouds of verse 7. And number two, we'd like to make some comment on the Alpha and Omega of verse 8. And three, the Son of Man of verse 13. And four, the clothing of verse 13 and succeeding verses. Does somebody know what a cloud is? We're talking of the clouds in, in verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Clouds is frequently confused, <laughs> excuse me, Anna, with clouds. I don't know whether it's because they rhyme, uh, and I'm, I don't mean to say that there's no relation here, but... I wonder if we have some other alternative answer. Glory? What somebody else says, multitude? Uh, my question, I'm sorry, my question was not perhaps put in the best way. Uh, when I think of a cloud out here, we've just had a little rain probably that uh, had some, something to do with clouds. Uh, in a natural sense, what is a cloud? Uh, that's really, uh, you know, I have a definition down here that will uh, will strike your notebooks. <laughs> Opaque conjuries of aqueous particles. That's what he said. Back here. <laughs> I, I, I could have. <laughs> Conjuries of aqueous particles. <laughs> All right, we know that a cloud, maybe we don't know really that a cloud, it, uh, has a formation 
uh, from a chemical or natural sense uh, of drawing waters from the earth upward uh, by some uh, measure, electricity or something, uh, in order to form a, a uh, again I'll use that word, aqueous uh, particle, uh, opaque in the sense that it's not solid, or, or, uh, and we, we know that clouds sometimes we see them blue and black and white and different shades. But, but they really are, are measures of water that are lifted up from the earth uh, to reside or rest in the uh, upper atmosphere until such time as they dissipate or, or have some action. So we, we know in general that, that uh, we have the natural clouds, we observe them. We may not think much about them, and this is perhaps the thought that we might uh, make here. Uh, because they furnish a, a rather uh, interesting an expressive symbol that is representative of those, as Anna has suggested here, of those crowds, or, or congregations, or, or multitudes of people uh, that are to be present with the Lord, as is given to us in this first chapter of Revelation. He cometh with crowds. Now, none of us here are, are so uh, uh, erroneous, I'd say, in our thinking as to suggest that the Lord Jesus is going to come marching in someday with some clouds in the sky uh, pulling along with him, or in some, some natural sense, clouds. This, this has to have a meaning other than that. He's not coming with clouds in the same sense of a rainstorm or, or the sun and moon or some uh, planetary uh, uh, things. Uh, he is coming with clouds or a parallel of the natural cloud uh, that will be uh, meaningful. Uh, and in the uh, apocalypse and in other places in the scripture, the inhabitants of the earth are styled many waters. We're familiar with this. The waters which thou sawest, upon which the harlot sitteth, this is Revelation 17:15, are peoples. In other words, this harlot was sitting upon waters. And again, this is not literal. She's not out in the middle of the ocean in a chair somewhere. Uh, she's sitting upon many water, uh, waters, which mean peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. That's Revelation 17, 1 and 15. And from these waters are the massive uh, generations of mankind uh, have been exhaled by the Spirit, which is the truth. That is, the truth is the influence which draws these waters from their natural uh, circumstances uh, upward to heavenly places. It is the truth or the Spirit of God's Word that... that uh, causes the evaporation or dissipation of the natural man and lifts him up uh, so that he may become a crowd. Uh, Paul terms them in, in the, uh, I believe it's in the writing to the Hebrews, isn't it? Wherefore we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, we are looking back in faith upon this great multitude of people who were operated upon by the Spirit Word, who, who responded to it, who uh, accepted its uh, challenge, and who dedicated themselves uh, to its uh, doing. So the subjects of this crowd are in the earth, and perceived only as particles to be exhaled or drawn out by the power of those beings, soon to irradiate from the Son of Righteousness. When he shall arise with healing in his rays, they will come forth from the womb of the dawn as dew. Every resurrected saint will be a dewdrop sparkling in the starlight glory 
of the divine refraction. The appearance of dew from the womb of dawn as representative of the resurrection of the saints is one of the most beautiful uh, scriptural similitudes. Before the sun rises, all of nature is concealed in the womb of night. It's in a state of darkness. And although the herbage is wet with dew, yet it is, it is invisible by the reason of the darkness. In other words, it needs something to bring it to light and to show its glory and to show its refractive light and brilliance. And as soon as the eastern portals of the sky begin to open to the light, which is the light of the dew, it, its drops begin to sparkle with the prismatic glory of its refraction. The apocalypse or appearing of the dew is its birth from the womb of dawn. And however clear the air may be at its birth, oftentimes the heat of the sun's rays exhales it from its herbage and it becomes invisible until it reappears at the atmospheric dew point in the form of clouds. This symbolizes the relation of the saints to Christ as the dew and clouds of the millennial dawn to the sun of the new heavens prepared as a bridegroom emerging from his canopy and rejoicing as a conqueror for the running of a course. The reference there is Psalms 19.5. One of the other writings uh, from Brother Thomas uh, mentioned uh, in great depth and we commend it to your study. I don't have it here in my notes or, or at hand. I believe it's in the uh, Anastasis booklet uh, in which he speaks of the formation of the dew uh, being made up of these uh, basically two chemicals, uh, hydrogen and oxygen. We, we know that water today we refer to it as H2O or two parts of hydrogen and one of oxygen. And that these constituent parts he uh, chemically unites or puts together in the sense that, that they already exist, that they, they, the uh, elements, the uh, working uh, material is available and ready to be put to use, but it requires the agency, as we've suggested here, the uh, healing rays of the Son of Righteousness arising and uh, causing certain action to take place on these, but it is a very beautiful and uh, thought-provoking symbol. The saints in the resurrection state, being thus likened to sparkling dewdrops, the ascension to clouds should also be uh, understood when we consider the work of the multitudinous Christ. And let us look at uh, Daniel 7.27 as uh, one reference on this and try to put it in its, uh, uh, the, the perspective of the uh, multitudinous group. and the kingdom, and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So these uh, literal heights of uh, political or ecclesiastical, if you wish, uh, ascendancy that these clouds ha have risen to it is there associated with the highest of ruling powers, with the highest of spirit nature, with the highest of attainment, of moral perfection. And when they ascend to the throne and dominion of this kingdom, of this everlasting kingdom, we see them as clouds uh, in the sense of, of, uh, of height, if you wish, 
are of uh, rain giving or, or the many uh, virtuous things uh, in the sense of dealing out healing and benefits to mankind that possibly we can think of. The power of deity in every particle of these clouds is the omnipotence of the apocalypse. Eternal power invested with crowds of virtuous and heroic immortals constituted in the aggregate Ezekiel's whirlwind out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and round about its brightness, and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber, even out of the midst of the fire, whence proceeded the likeness of four living creatures. There are many uh, allusions in, in, uh, in Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah uh, to symbols of this uh, immortal group. The limitation of our appreciation of it is, is only bounded uh, by the amount of uh, diligence and study that we will contribute to it. In the eighth verse of, of Revelation 1, we're told there that he who is coming is the Almighty. Also, that this Almighty One pertains to three periods, the past, the present, and the future. The he who is coming. And again, we're suggesting that this is not he, Christ, by himself, but he, Christ, with his multitude. Also uh, suggested in this verse is that he has a beginning and also an ending, and that is symbolized by the two letters given to us here of the Greek alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega. As most of us uh, may know, uh, we say in our alphabet, uh, he, uh, he knows that subject from A to Z. Well, we would be saying the same thing in the Greek alphabet by saying he knows his subject from alpha to omega because alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and omega is the last. I believe there are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet and rather than uh, A, B, C like we have our English, uh, there are alpha, beta, and delta, and epsilon and different uh, words, I guess we would call them, uh, that make up the 24 uh, letters of the Greek alphabet. So if, if we have a beginning and an ending, we may be drifting back a little bit to the subject of the uh, aeon and the deity's aeon, but we, we would have to conclude that whoever is being talked about in this eighth verse, if I am the Alpha and Omega who has a beginning and an ending, that it could not be talking about deity, since we, we cannot measure uh, his beginning and his ending. So our uh, thoughts are led to the suggestion that since it does not refer to him, uh, it must refer uh, to his representative. The eternal first cause uh, has power underived and has existence underived. Uh, if he had not always existed without beginning, it is a logical conclusion that there would have been no creation. To imagine a time or a point of past antiquity when this power, our strength, our deity, our eternal first cause did not exist would be to suppose a time when there was nothing, no existing thing. And this supposition would be to make nothing the intelligent and wise creator of something, an obvious absurdity. 
if there were a greater than deity, and I think our mind sometimes runs off the uh, deep end here, if there were a greater than deity, then, then he would be deity. Deity would be a, a false claimant to, to whoever he claimed to be. And if that deity had a beginning, uh, then therefore he would have created the second one and so forth. Uh, we, ha we would just keep indefinitely going back, uh, running into this uh, brick wall of uh, incongruity. So the beginning or the alpha stage was in Jesus Christ, who himself proclaimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The head of the body, the ecclesia, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. His sufferings and obedience laid the foundation for others who suffered for the same cause, and that cause is truth. It is what we said, uh, spoke about yesterday. It is for the glory of God. That is the cause that men suffer, that God's name might be held emphatically on a level that is consistent with what his word has revealed that he is and what he purposes to be. It will be seen that when the one body is complete in all of its elements, it will have been a suffering community. And we have a hymn. I can't recite the words. It's uh, 150, about who are these before the throne, and, and the, the general thought uh, behind the hymn is that they came out of great tribulation. They're a suffering community, uh, very similar, uh, not to the degree as has been pointed out, that the Master suffered, but in his footsteps. When the great mystery of Christ and his ecclesia is consummated in the resurrection, and the subsequent anointing of the one body, the omega, or the ending, and the who is coming of this verse will be manifested. He is not here. The omega stage, stage has not been reached. The alpha has been affirmed in the coming of Jesus, in the presentation uh, and confirmation and the many uh, uh, works that he did uh, to establish what he represented. We have the Alpha. We do not have, at this present date, uh, the Omega. We await its unfolding. Uh, there's another interesting word. It's not, uh, I guess it's a French origin. I don't know if we have French students here, and, and I'm not even sure I can pronounce it. Uh, maybe I can spell it. Denouement, see, I call it denouement or denouement or something, but uh, what does that mean? What is it? Final ending. That's right. Uh, uh, there's a parallel. Somebody else? What is it? The ultimate. The ultimate? Revelation is, is one good word. I'll tell you what Dr. Thomas calls it, and, and I think there, there has never lived a man that has the uh, expressive abilities that this man has. Uh, well, one word he uses is unraveling. Well, that, that, that's not, I think there's another word he uses, but, but even unraveling is, is, uh, is interesting in the sense, uh, final objective or, or, uh, or ultimate, as she's suggested here, uh, apocalyptic or revelatory or something like this, but this, this is the answer 
It's the omega. It's the uh, complete picture or fulfillment of the picture. Sometimes we can see the picture through prophetic symbol that this is going to happen and we've seen several of the steps and there are a few more to follow but the uh, denouement or however this pronounced not much. <laughs> well you can remember it by the mispronunciation. It <laughs> uh, is a real uh, thought searcher I think. Well, at this time, the whole multitude will be deity manifested in flesh. Isn't that his purpose? Isn't that the meaning of Yahweh? Didn't he tell Moses at the bush that this is what's going to happen? Isn't that what he told him? That's what we're suggesting here today. We're suggesting the same thing was said in the uh, simple preachings of Christ's doctrine, that this is going to happen, that, that I'll be back, these men at... at uh, uh, first chapter of Acts, who saw him ascend into heaven, says, this same Jesus that you've seen ascend into heaven will so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. He's going to do certain things. Paul tells us that he will raise the quick and the dead. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be power and great glory. It will be manifested in holy ones. That's what they're all saying. They're not giving us some of this stuff about whatever we dream up in our mind, or this person can believe this thing, and this person over here can have a different concept, and we'll have 45 different opinions here. We can't uh, agree with God. God is not so uh, flamboyant or, or uh, undiscerning or unstable as to suggest that uh, try it any way you want to. He's got a definite and specific program, and it is to our benefit uh, to give ourselves to its understanding. Here then we have a multitude which no man can number, every individual of which is glorified substance. They're not, as we suggested a while ago, the opaque conjuries that, that you might see through, that you can't feel, touch. We're talking about flesh. Are we talking about flesh and blood? Spirit. Can you touch? I would think so. Touch, feel, see. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sit down in the kingdom and others cast out. This is something that's visible. We're not talking about a phantasma that, that, that's something that uh, a man might see by putting on some glasses or, or even maybe not be able to see at all. We're talking about reality, substance, consubstantiality with God. What do we mean by that term? Of, of like nature of God. Does that mean we are equal with God? In no sense. We can have that nature. He can bestow upon us the benefit of unending life without sharing or, or condescending uh, or giving up his throne on high. Uh, consubstantial nature is another point that we should... Uh, endeavor to uh, talk upon, think upon, and uh, understand. This is the attainment of the Omega state, and there will be nothing uh, lacking or nothing left unfulfilled when that is achieved. We'll throw out one little uh, thought here. Whether we're talking of the Bride of Christ, the multitudinous Christ, or the Omega uh, state, that this basic formation 
is at the coming of Christ and the judgment seat. That we're, we're told in so many words that at his return, he will call before him uh, the saints from all ages. He will judge them and he will reward them according to his works. Those that are not rewarded, of course, will be rejected and cast out. But then he has with him at this time uh, an omega, uh, quotation marks, multitude. He still has a thousand years uh, operations to uh, proceed into, and at, at or during uh, this period of time, uh, there will be redeemed or rescued or saved ones coming out during this thousand years. Now, there are some of us uh, who might choose to believe that the Omega state is, is limited uh, to the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, there are others, uh, uh, which I, I think perhaps I would be one of, that say, well, let's go on to the end of the thousand years and get the complete multitude, those saved in the 6,000-year era and those saved in the other 1,000-year era, and then we have a complete body of saved ones, or we have an omega state uh, whereby we have Christ and all those like him in temperament, morality, and nature. And at that point, we have a complete alpha and omega picture. We said that there were 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, and perhaps the 24 elders of Revelation 4.4 4 that, that are shown in vision there are representative of the almighty uh, Alpha and Omega stages of deity manifestation. Uh, there are many things that we might say uh, regarding that, but uh, we choose not to at this time. Son of man, if we notice this down in the 13th verse of Revelation 1, Yes, sir. Does anybody know? Some others apparently have heard this too. Ken, uh, I have not, so. Well, this fits very nicely, uh, complements my uh, subject, uh, showing that we begin with a, either a first cause or a first cause representative in, in Jesus Christ, and the multitude, our plurality uh, of omega, suggests a, a proper multitudinous ending. Thank you. The Son of Man, in this verse 13, is a title bestowed upon the perfect man that we read about in Daniel uh, 10 and Daniel 7 to indicate his origin, son of man. Now, son expresses the idea of emanation, does it not? We don't have a son who is created. We cannot say, uh, except in a uh, restricted sense, that Adam was the son of anybody. I think it is in the scriptures that Adam was the son of God in the genealogy, and, and either in Matthew or Luke. It says, who was the son of so-and-so and so-and-so, son of Adam, who was the son of God. In, in the uh, literal sense, he was not the Son of God. In the creative sense, he was the Son of God. But when we use the term Son of Man, we're talking of a person who is the descendant of some previous person. Uh, and so it is with Christ. He has a, uh, an expression or a title that is relative to him as Son of Man, which is very appropriate. He also has the title and ascription Son of God, which is equally important for us to recognize. But here we have a picture in this first chapter of Revelation that expresses an idea of descent or emanation. 
So that seen in the midst of the light stands, as he is in this 13th verse, he is the stem or shaft. And he was an emanation from the race of Adam. If we were to draw something like that, uh, I think there's a, well, even the Greek, uh, the Jewish canon of that, the, uh, uh, I haven't got enough wings on it there. Uh, we have the burner here, and, and we have the stem or shaft, which is Christ, and then the, uh, one of the chapters of Zechariah give us the, uh, the same picture. Uh, of Jesus, uh, the two trees, the one from the Gentiles and one from the Jews, pouring oil into this uh, device uh, whereby the saved from all nations, uh, both Jew and Gentile, will burn eternal light, as it were, uh, unto deity. Just as the multitudes of Israel in bondage down in Egypt were called my son, my firstborn, so, the Son of Man in the midst of the light stands here in the 13th verse represents a multitude of individuals taken from the human race. So it's not a figure of speech that we're uh, picking out as a, uh, a long shot here. Uh, if Israel certainly, multitudinous as they were, uh, some two million at least in, in the bondage uh, grip of Egypt, could be called my son, my firstborn, certainly this immortal group stemming from the shaft of Jesus Christ, adopting and uh, uh, living by his standards, being constitutionally in him or part of his family, certainly can be his uh, sons, the same as Christ in the singular sense is the son of deity. The multitudinous sense, they are also uh, the son of God and son of man. Job says in... in uh, one of his uh, writings, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. Now again, we're talking in symbolic clothing. We cannot put on any garment that will make us better or worse than we are uh, within ourselves. We cannot clothe ourselves with a literal garment that makes us righteous. But we can put on righteousness in the sense of bringing it into our person and can then say of ourselves that we are clothed with righteousness. And so this Son of Man that we see in the first of the Apocalypse here uh, is so uh, adorned. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness in Psalms 132.9. Revelation 19.8, it said of the community who we style the Lamb's wife, that to her it was given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, pure and bright. They who constitute this woman, the Lamb's wife, are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, as his clouds of cavalry, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, which is declared to be the righteousness of the saints. And again, we, I guess, talk a little bit of the absurd. Nobody is interested in seeking out and participating in the future kingdom of God so that they can have a literal piece of clothing to wear. This is not the teaching or, or symbolism at all here. We're not talking about being warm or comfortable or even dressed up. But what we are talked about, what we are talking about is to put on a righteous character or a, a uh, satisfactory and complete change of nature from the uh, mortal or perishing to the immortal 
are everlasting. The multitude that is symbolized by the Son of Man attains to this dominion through much tribulation and by resurrection. When they stand up, they have obtained the victory over death and the grave through him that loved them and laid down his life for them. They are therefore represented as clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. In their mortal state, saints put on Christ as a robe when they believe the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ and are baptized into that name. They fall asleep in him and they arise to partake of the nature that their head has attained. When they are clothed with the spirit nature, they are clothed upon with their house from heaven, mortality having been swallowed up of life. This is the consummation of their investiture which begins with their immersion into Christ and is perfected in their post-resurrectional immortalization by the Spirit through Jesus. Briefly going over the remaining uh, description of the attire of this Son of Man in, in chapter 1, we see that he is clothed down to the foot. Well, this suggests to us that there is a complete clothing, that there is no nakedness or no sin or no uh, obvious defect uh, about this uh, attire. He has, uh, uh, in the 13th verse, as part of his uh, attire, a golden girdle. And, and the significance of this is that there is a priestly relation here, perhaps much like the uh, ironic or the symbols that were given uh, in his clothing. Uh, but the gold would signify that he has attained or reached the uh, immortalized or glorified state. There's another word there for girdle. Somebody might help me. I've forgotten what it is. Uh, offhand. Is it, is it zone? Oh, I'll pass. Hmm? Uh, well, I, meant, I guess I meant English, uh, Brother Benny. I think there's another translation that's uh, instead of golden girdle. It's not a girdle in the sense that we have come down in our age as a very tight piece of clothing to uh, keep you bound close together, I guess, but it, it's a, a loose-fitting band or zone, sash maybe, uh, adornment rather than the sense that we speak of it today, I think. That's at the 13th verse. Uh, it will tell you in Eureka, I'm sure. Gird about golden sash. Sash. Uh, a loose-fitting, uh, uh, symbolic, the same as today. We Sometimes we see people uh, given a stripe or something laying across their garments that indicates the, an exceptional award or an attainment of some kind like this. So here, are, uh, here we have a symbolic one man uh, with linen garments down to his ankle, completely covered as we would with a, with a long gown or robe, uh, a golden sash or, or band about it to signify uh, the priest aspect in the glorified state. We see his head and hairs white as snow, which signifies the purity of the body or the ecclesia. We see his eyes as flame of fire, and this is defined as intelligence and wrathful activity, that this man that we see here is not what we would call a, an entirely peaceful man, that he has at, at the stage of his, uh, we're, if we're talking again of this word of unraveling or revealing, we're not down to his complete 
uh, uh, program that he is to carry into effect uh, in the course of time. So uh, once this man is form formulated or constituted, the eye of his flame of fire, showing that he has a wrathful activity to go forth into, is signified by these eyes as flame of fire. And also his feet like fine brass show that he has uh, pedal, Thanks. The word, I think, is digits that Dr. Thomas uses again uh, of uh, a furious progression into, into battle or, whereby he can overtake and downtread the enemy. Uh, uh, his feet as fine brass and the voice as the sound of many waters signifying again the multitudinous aspect of this man. His voice, if we were to think of the sound or utterance that goes forth from him, is that of a multitudinous uh, unity, one man, but made up of many uh, component men or parts. At the return of Christ, the first item in the sequence of events is the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the saints. The point in time, I think we might all agree, in, in the 16th chapter of Revelation, is at the end of the sixth vial. Most of us would agree on that. I think. I've heard lately some interpretation that all six or seven of the of the vials are yet future, but I think the general uh, accepted uh, position as the one that I'm offering here today is that at the end of the sixth vial or the drying up of the Euphrates uh, power in Revelation 16, uh, Christ says, or there's an announcement made, Behold, I come quick, quickly, and the announcement of Armageddon is at that time. So concurrent with the shaping up of the world to Armageddon, the return of Christ takes place. And before he uh, moves into contention with any of his foes, he must judge his saints, must form this multitudinous man, and must, we might say in a, in a very literal sense, get ready for action or get ready for battle. So it, it's very illogical to say that he would do some battle and then say later on, well, now I'll gather my forces now that I've done the battle. You gather your forces, you put your army together, and you say, now I go out uh, to meet the foe. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul writes, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So that's when he's going to judge them, at his appearing. 1 Peter 1.7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, there are inferences in the parables of Christ as to the order of the resurrection. Certainly, Christ must make a determination as to who is acceptable before he can go forth uh, to multitudinous work. Our time is it's really about up. I think maybe we should stop here. Is that agreeable with the timekeepers? Uh, uh, if we have time for a question or two, we'd be glad to try to handle that. Uh, Otherwise, we can take them up in this afternoon's session. All right, class dismissed.